the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen. AM 1420 WBSM presents Spooky South Coast with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Just when you thought it was safe to listen in on uh, Saturdays at uh, 10 o'clock, the Bruins have become relevant. Uh, we're here tonight. It's an, uh, also an abbreviated cast and crew here. Uh, this is Chris Balzano phoning in from beautiful and sunny Florida. And uh, Matt Costa is running the board, but the rest of the boys are all out uh, at the Fearing Tavern with their event. Gallivanting. Um, so it's just just two of us. <laughs> and, uh, and we're looking to talk the paranormal the way we do each and every Saturday when we're not interrupted by sporting events. And uh, when I was told that I was going to be uh, coming in and and hosting, there was one person I wanted to get on. And uh, ironically enough, <laughs> tonight is, is a lot like a, most times I should have a conversation with this gentleman. Um, usually we're rushed for some reason because we're at an event together or we're doing an investigation. I can't just sit down and pick this gentleman's brain. So I'm going to be able to do that tonight, although not for as long as I had hoped. And so uh, I'm going to ask that we bring in Tom Diagostino. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Tom is a paranormal investigator, folklorist, legend hunter, cemetery crawler. Uh, he's the author of Haunted Massachusetts, Haunted Rhode Island, oh, Haunted hello. New Hampshire. Um, his new books that have just come out that we're really going to be hopefully getting into tonight are Haunted Vermont uh, and then Connecticut Ghost Stories and Legends. Um, he is also the author and expert on all things uh, cemetery and all things vampire in New England, as well as uh, uh, the great pirate stories that come from this area. So, uh, Tom, welcome to the show. Hello. This is now, now, Tom, let me ask, ask you. Let, let me start with this. I, I know you spent today at, a, at, a, at Rock and Jock, or was it Rock and, uh, <laughs> Rock and Shock? Rock and Shock. Dealing with Roddy Roddy Piper, the Buseys. Um, you were saying Robert England. Did you ever think that an interview on Spooky South Coast would be even weirder than that? <laughs> uh, no. Well, Gary Busey was there and Jake Busey, too, so, I mean, you know, <laughs> we had a full, uh, you know. <laughs> but, no, this is pretty, um, like, you know, you guys, between, I guess, your sisters and our system, this place is, you know, the whole thing is pretty haunted. <laughs> it looks like we're going to have to... Uh, you know, get the Johnsons to come out to the studio and perhaps to my house to get this all figured <laughs> out. But, but we've got it now, and we're hopefully going to have a excellent discussion. Like I was saying in my intro that you didn't hear, I, I never get enough time to talk with you. Oh um, yeah, I know. You I, are I, same in here. Addition, in addition to being, you know, the the person who has covered every state other than Maine, I think, uh, at least not you know in depth. In New England, if they invented another New England state, you would be the first person to write a ghost book about it. Um, but you have an amazing mind. You have an amazing viewpoint on the paranormal. That's kind of <clears throat> what I wanted to get into a little bit. But I wanted to start with, um, you know, this uh, this weekend I've been kind of posting on Facebook, what is, just to get people's responses, what is the most haunted state uh, in New England? And so I thought with the authority of all hauntings having to do with New England, what would be your opinion? What is the most haunted state in New England? Uh, actually, per capita, Rhode Island is. Now, why do you say that? Is it is it the, the nature of the hauntings, or just the mere number of them, or? Yeah, actually, it's it's a very 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 small state. Um, you know, a lot of major cities are larger than the whole state, but per capita in size, it has more hauntings than anywhere. Anywhere in the whole country, um, and you you know you have like a state where um, not only is it in New England, of course, so it's a very one of the oldest settled regions in the country, but it's also part of that glacial dump where there's lots of quartz crystals and underground streams, and just so it's a, it's also very densely populated, so that also helps, you know, ripen the idea that for haunts. And is that kind of like? It's on another thing that I want to talk about, which is with the uniqueness. Now, most people across the country are going to say New England is New England. 
you know, and they group all the states together. Um, but they're really unique in terms of their uh, geography, in terms of their history, in terms of the people. Do you feel that, that each state has its own kind of paranormal personality? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Rhode Island has its own, Massachusetts, Vermont, Connecticut. They each have their own. It's almost like they, it would almost like if they could be different countries, not even connected to each other. Right. Like, describe what the difference might be between some place like Rhode Island and Massachusetts. Well, Rhode Island, you have, uh, of course, the, the the Indian ghosts and spirits are, are everywhere. But it's kind of cool because Rhode Island, you have a lot of the colonial ghosts that seem to be more. Um, I don't know. It's like a, the, the hauntings and legends are not as conservative as other places, but mm-hmm. they're more. They're, they're kind of. Um, it's hard to say. Like uh, they're handed down. <laughs> Where places right, like right. Massachusetts, you have things going across with these super stories of places like, like you know, in Sandusfield. You, in places like that, you have these wonderful taverns and inns, and like, um, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, just wicked, really cool stuff of these historical places. Because don't forget, that's the birthplace of America, is Massachusetts. <laughs> and the the stories go down and and on and on and on, and yet they have such a lustrous history to them. And you know, people just cherish them in the way they tell them. And then you go into Connecticut, where you have legends, 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 and stories. And the legends are huge. So each one has its own, you know, Maine has its what they call yarns, and really Vermont has unbelievable stories of frozen citizens and things. (laughs) Well, it was funny because I was, um, uh, your Haunted Vermont book, uh, which is one of your newer books, I was looking over it, and I was, um, you know, the, you sent me the table of contents because I wasn't able to get it. And, and I remember back in the day, we had swapped books. Uh, and I was supposed to write Vermont, and you were supposed to write something, you know, more about Boston, and we switched them. And I remember the research that I had started doing, there was um, just a ton of legend-type stuff. But then I look at your table of contents, and it seems like it's much more of, like, our traditional, what you would think, haunting. Yeah. In Vermont. Yeah, in Vermont. In Vermont. I mean, did, did you find that? Did you go into it thinking that it was going to be much more legends, and then and then all of a sudden, bow like there's some genuinely haunted places? Yeah, I did actually. Um, my actually, my family is from Vermont, Swanton, Vermont, near the Canadian border. And uh, it was when I started researching, I found yeah, they have like haunting hauntings, but it's kind of cool the way they treat them. It's like more like they say, oh yeah, yeah, that's our resident ghost. <laughs> and they kind of like treat them like, yeah, that's family. You know, it's, it's almost like they don't freak out over it. They don't get scared over it. It's like almost like, you know, grandma coming to visit or something. <laughs> They're very affectionate with their uh, ghost spirits and haunts. And so the first thing I have to ask you about a specific Vermont story would have to be the Headless Horseman legend. Now, is that a legend or is that a, a genuine people are still seeing this kind of thing? And if you can just get into that story a little bit. Is that Vermont or Canton, Connecticut? Oh, is that is that Canton? Is that yeah, name? the Headless Horseman of Canton is Connecticut. Oh, well, then please get into that one then. <laughs> um, yeah, the uh, um, there was a French paymaster during the revolution, the waning days of the revolution, that had to send. Uh, he was sent to dispatch money to the troops, the French troops, um, and. He got as far as Canton, which they didn't call it Canton back then. They called it suffrage. And that was on Route 44, incidentally, the good old Route 44. And he stopped in the hospice stand, and he asked for, you know, room for the night. And some of the people there drinking bitters saw this well-dressed man in a military uniform with a big saddlebag full of money. Well, anyway, he never delivered the money, and he never was seen again. And the military officials put a trace on him and traced him to the hospital stand, and that was it. Nobody ever saw him. And years ago, so now all of a sudden this uh, headless <laughs> horseman starts appearing on the highway there, and, uh, you know, the travelers, and many people saw him. They didn't know who he was or what he was all about, 
until the late 1800s when the, when the inn burned down and they found a skeleton buried in the floor with its head buried further in. And before that, however, two, a uh, couple of youths fishing um, kind of pulled up the remains of a horse in some rotted saddlebags, and they noticed something about the skeleton of the horse. The horseshoes were from Revolutionary time. So, and are people still seeing this headless horseman, or is this one of those uh, days gone by kind of things? No, I have actually heard the cases that although Route 44 is well driven now by automobiles, uh, people have actually seen the headless horseman along the road. They have, uh, it's, you know, Route 44 is a wild road. It can be four lanes wide to like one small lane on each side, and it runs from Plymouth, Massachusetts, right to New York State, and it has every kind of imaginable size, shape, form, and, and setting. So, of course, it's ripe for haunts. But, yeah, people still see it, according to what I've heard. They actually, some people actually jack up because they see this, this thing on a horse, a misty figure on a horse, and they're like, what the heck is that happening? You know, what's a horse doing running down the road with a guy on it <laughs> in 2000 and whatever, 11? Right, that's crazy. And, and, and how about the black dogs of Hanging Hills? Ah, uh, the black dog of Hanging Hills. Well, Arlene and I were going to go, we're actually going to go there and hike, but then when we, I actually studied the story, I figured, you know, best left unseen. But the black dog is much like uh, they have the black shuck and uh, the snarly yow and all that. Well, if you see this, the cost of black shuck, you, you're going to die. Right. But the black dog of the Hanging Hills, the first time you see it, it's a, not a big dog, it's just a small, very friendly uh, creature. The first time you see it brings you good luck. The second time brings you misfortune. And the third time brings you death. Which is also a form of misfortune. Yes, but the, of course the ultimate misfortune, you know, to many people. Uh, the, um, the, a few people, a, a, a guy named W.C. Pynchon or Pynchon had experienced it when he was with a friend of his who had seen the dog twice and while they were up studying the crags of the Hanging Hills because the archaeological and, um, uh, you know, whole thing about the rocks and all that and uh, geological study there is incredible because of the, the, the just what the uh, formation of the rocks from a geological standpoint. So they've been studied by many people. And uh, he had seen the dog for the third time. And as he looked up and pointed it out, the next thing you know, he was gone. He, the uh, ledge gave way, and he fell to his death. That was the second time that the other man, Mr. Pynchon or Pynchon, had seen him. And uh, he went back years later and never came back. They found him in the same place the first man had died. They don't know if he saw the dog for the third time, but it was, you know, that kind of thing. So another a group of people had went up there, a couple of people hiking. One of them had seen the dog the day before, and then both of them went back up there, and he saw the dog again and pointed it out to his friend, and he fell and broke his leg. And both of them saw, thought that it would be best not to go back there. <laughs> How much of that do you think is, um, you know, of people knowing the legend and then kind of, you know, falling victim of it. The, the people that you're hearing from and the people that you've researched, are they ones that have independently um, just reported these things, or are they people who have heard the legend? You know, is, is it kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy that the second time you see it, you're going to mess yourself up? According to my research, all of them had heard the legend. So um, it could be just complete coincidence on these small separate occasions, which would be like, uh, basically, you know, 100,000 people could have seen if this black dog is there, could have seen this black dog once or twice, and ne nothing ever happened. But these are, you know, incidents that are recorded that happened where personal injury or death was involved. And, of course, just to, to say it again, anyone who wants to read uh, more about these stories, uh, they can go to your local bookstore, go to any of the ones that sell them, just type in Tom D'Agostino, you'll find the whole plethora of them. We're kind of uh, specifically talking tonight about Haunted Vermont and Connecticut uh, ghost stories and legends. And uh, anyone who wants to get a little brief overview of what Tom is doing, uh, go on to Spooky South Coast, click on our 
on our guest spot, or you can actually click right into Tom's section, which is Tom Bio, and uh, and read some of the articles that he's been posting us for us here at uh, Spooky South Coast. But um, one of the things I wanted to get into, because you've mentioned um, the geology a few times, is that uh, you are unique in that you completely embrace uh, the esoteric side of uh, investigating. You're very technical. You're very scientific in much that you do, and yet there's this other part of you that uh, you and Arlene that, that both rely so heavily on things that can't be seen and measured. And so I just wanted you to talk about, like, which, which force do you think guides you more? Um, well, that, that's a really good question because between Arlene and I, we split it to the point where each of us can be in charge of one or the other. That way uh, we can concentrate the most as a team. Uh, Arlene is a gifted card reader and also very gifted at the dowsing rods. And, um, of course, I do a lot of the technical things by recording and EVP work such as that, and so does she. But her, the, between the two, we try to mix them enough where we can find, um, uh, I guess, a well-rounded uh, faction that when we're doing these investigations, we can go through every single idea and question that we may have and just get the most complete investigation possible because I realize one thing, and that is, uh, well, like Ron Kolick Jr. always says, which we're uh, chasing after invisible people. <laughs> you can't see them. <laughs> and we breathe air. Right, and and most of the point you can't see air, but it's there. It's energy, isn't it? So, right, right. And a way to, a, another way to tackle it is to, um, of course, go by an esoterical way. We're energy. We're electrical. We're magnetic. You know, the Earth is magnetic, and you can't really see a lot of that. I mean, we have auras. You can actually see an aura. So to try and tape record an aura isn't going to work. <laughs> Right. However, to try and communicate with an aura through other processes that are much, much older than the tape recorder, since people have known auras existed much longer, uh, is definitely another way of, of communication. Now, Chris and Tom, I hate to interrupt, but uh, we, we need to pause for a station identification, if that's okay. Oh, sure. And uh, we actually have a phone call, so I'll, I'll go to that right after this. First, with local news, talk, and sports, this is WBSM New Bedford, AM 1420, WBSM, a cumulus station. And we're back from it. I just, uh, you said you were on to go to a phone call. Yep, we'll and uh, we're on the air with uh, this caller. Oh, hey, how oh. you doing? Hey, you're on the air with uh, Chris Balzano and Tom D'Agostino. Hey, Tom. Hey, Chris. How you both doing? Great. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing pretty good. Um, I had bought the book Haunted Rhode Island, and one of the things I've not had a chance yet to do is listen to Tom speak when he has some of his speaking engagements around here. And I had a question about, um, you had one of the chapters on a an old funeral home that had been like a band space or something that you played in. Oh, yes. I was wondering if you could just elaborate on that a little bit. That was uh, the old Gorton Funeral Home on Route 117. Um, it, just after 116 spills out onto it, you would take a left. And we rented it from 1984 to 1992. It, it, we actually moved the embalming table to make our recording studio and all the old embalming fluids. They were just left in the cellar. And the things that happened were incredible. The place was just alive. Um, I don't, I mean, it was some nights you'd walk in there and you could just feel the energy. Even during some of the recordings, we got strange voices. And we, we, there was a recording studio, so when you close the doors, there's the band and, you know, the engineer. <laughs> and yet we played the, the uh, recordings back, and you'd hear, like, cries and screams. And, I mean, it was three floors that was of, of viewing rooms as well. And they were mostly empty except for stuff left behind, like wheelchairs and uh, suitcases that had, I guess, clothing when they wanted to dress the people. 
Oh, wow. Yeah, it was, it was really creepy. And now it's, um, I guess, I'm not sure what's in there now. I haven't been by there in a few years. But the owner does not want to be bothered with any of that stuff. I, I guess the people started. But you can drive by, take pictures. It's, some of it's office space. I know that. They got rid of the elevator shaft, and they made offices and things out of it um, in the back. But um, I guess people started going nuts on it. But you can go by. You'll, you'll know it when you see it. Go by, take pictures. You can go inside if you want to. Yeah, I love those books because, I mean, the way you've got stuff laid out, it, it's great because people can plan, like, road trips and actually go see these places. So. Yeah, that was my intention for all the books because I used to read books on people going into haunted houses and stuff, and I go, what fun is this? I can't go there. <laughs> so <laughs> well, I, wanted to, you know, I, I wanted to make it so everyone can go to these places. Maybe they'll find something and they'll, like, get a, you know all of us and let us all know they found something wild that we could actually build from. And then two of your books are, are part of the America, the Haunted America series, uh, the one that's kind of an overview of New England and then the Connecticut Ghost Stories and Legends. But before that, you were, like you said, you were already setting your books up to be not just um, stories from an area, but actual travel guides. So, I mean, even from the from the very first one that I know of, which is um, Haunted New Hampshire, that was a, definitely an intention, intentional thing that you were doing with there. Yes, yeah. I've um, I've had a lot of people say it reads like a travel guide, and I'm like, that's because it is. <laughs> I'm trying to get you to go to places and and see what we saw, and hopefully see more, and then let us know because we'd love to know. <laughs> you know, have you ever um, gotten any bump back from that? Has there ever been a place that you featured? Because if I'm not mistaken, you actually even offer directions to places sometimes. Yes, um, have you ever gotten yes. any bounce back from places that were like aggravated that you uh, had put them in the book? Um, not really. Everybody agreed. There was one person who was a little bit upset about it, but I, 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 then I let him know. I said, well, do you remember saying we could put it in the book because I have pictures of you and I standing in front of the building? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, I, and I said, he said, well, people are like, you know, vandal come in here and everything. I said, people, I, according to what I had when I was in the area, people had been going to that place 30 years before he owned it and partying, and I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll put it on my website, it's private property, do not go there, and I'll have all my friends put it on their website, too. And he was happy with that, and then he called, um, of course, he called Ghost Hunters Show, and, and they went in, so. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, because, I mean, it was, um, you know, we've talked about the responsibility of, of investigators and sites, uh, websites that feature things, and, you know, we've we've kind of broken down Shadowlands sometimes, um, you know, David's always said, if something ends up on the Shadowlands, then it's everyone knows about it already. Right. Um, we're just kind of offering a, a you know, um, the menu for them. But when you when you were doing this, the, the climate when you started doing this, the climate was very different than it is now, and there there was you know there was almost a stigma sometimes to places being haunted. Yeah. Which has since kind of like you know washed away slightly, at least. Yeah, actually, when I first started doing Rhode Island and that kind of thing, everybody was telling me, oh, we don't want that place. No, 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 no it's not haunted, blah, blah, blah. And then when the book came out and it started selling like unbelievable, the same people called me and say, why didn't you call me? And tell, uh, you know, I, I did. You hung up on me. <laughs> <laughs> and just, yeah. uh, just to throw it in there, as far as I know, according to the, 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 the informal stats that I was always constantly being given, haunted Massachusetts, um, haunted New Hampshire actually is, I believe, still... Uh, Schiffer's highest-selling paranormal book. Oh, is it? Which is which is odd because having lived in New Hampshire for a really long time, um, there was nothing. No one was talking about uh, any of the ghosts that were there. And of course, ghosts were tales to be told, you know, in the White Mountains and things like that. But in terms of places like Nashua and Manchester and and uh, and Hanover, all these places that you ended up being able to cover, um, there was there was nothing being said. So was that? Now that you've kind of gone through all the states and you've kind of, was that a, a harder place to, to get stories from? Not really. We actually loved doing New Hampshire, and the people were more than helpful. I mean, like Lake Winnipesaukee Historical Society, they were sending me droves of stuff. And we, I, I liked them so much, I joined. <laughs> and, of course, <laughs> we lived in Rhode Island over there in Barville, so it's a, it's, a, it's a ways away to attend their meetings, right? But, um, no, they were... Everyone was very, very helpful. There was only one, one 
absolute person who said, no, the place isn't really haunted. It's just some sort of folklore and legend and this and that and the other thing. And, and you know, you can come and check it out for yourself and you'll see. So he was, they weren't being, you know, obstinate about it. They were just saying, I don't know how that story got around, but come yourself when you're in the area and we'll show you. <laughs> you know, and, and uh, that was it, just one. Is that where that, I was, which was outside you... of, of Manchester, a place uh, named Gothtown, um, suffered some very similar things as the, as the uh, Bridgewater Triangle and other places that are having this high paranormal uh, reports in one kind of concentrated area, and that would be things like mental health disorder and teen suicide. When, when you were researching that book, were you getting stories out of, out of places like uh, Gothtown and where parts that were kind of in this suicide USA tagged uh, area at all? Um, we were. Um, one thing I do not write about is if anything was kind of current like that, where there was any tragedy, I would never, ever, ever write about it because, you know, the last thing family members want to do is pick up a book and read more pain right. and suffering. So in, in many of these, in many cases where these things happened and, it, you know, many uh, family members were still alive or something, I would forego these stories at all costs. Right. But were you getting other... Uh are there similar reports of, of things like in the Bridgewater Triangle and some other places where there were, because um, I know you've reported on these kinds of things in other places, but I don't remember anything in your Haunted New Hampshire book about, um, you know, creatures such as, such as uh, you know, uh, oh, like zombies or other paranormal, yeah. supernatural things in that area. Not really. The only one that, that um, the only thing we ever got like that more was in Vermont, Right. <laughs> and of course, a little bit in Connecticut, but in New Hampshire, no. And in Rhode Island, um, of course, the, the dog at the uh, Army Fort, you know, Fort Wetherill. But no, um, nobody ever really talked much about those. <clears throat> Maybe they thought we were looking for strict ghosts and just, you know, figured they'd save their their strange creature stories and UFO stories for someone else who was going to write books on strange creatures and UFOs. <laughs> Right, and obviously, well, I, never, I never came in contact. White Mountain area has a lot of Bigfoot type stories, and 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 of course, Exeter is, you know, actually still has UFO parades and, and events there. But but I was always wondering about that area, having lived there and kind of gone through the emotional stuff of it, whether whether there was any kind of connection. Uh, um, not no one ever talks about it to me, you know, and and I guess um, I don't know even. Family members of Officer Bertrand who saw the UFO back what was in 1965. I, yeah, unfortunately, uh, our, our expert in dress uh, dress holder is uh, is <laughs> an event that he could share a lot more with you. I just remember that being a very uh, you know whispered about as a very you know odd place uh, in large part because of the paranormal activity that was there. Yeah, including the UFOs. Yeah, and it was, it, 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 uh, but I didn't actually didn't cover them per se because. Um, a lot of people wanted to talk more about their ghosts. And right. I figured I'd leave that to the UFO experts anyway. I'm not a UFO expert, although I did read Project Blue Book four times when I was between the times I was 9 and 11 years old. <laughs> I was super into it. You know, but um, as I grew up, I did, did just the paranormal ghost and haunt thing and legends took over. And, you know, you, you can only focus on so much. You know, and that's kind of interesting because you are, um, when I think of Tom Biagostino, I think of the investigative side of you. And I think of uh, some really great tips you've given me along the way for, you know, the use of common everyday things in paranormal investigating. But when I really think of Tom Biagostino, what really kind of gets me going when I'm reading your stuff, or especially when I'm hearing you speak, is the folklorist in you. And do you ever find when you're doing stuff like that that you have to put down your investigative eyes, and now you're just a folklorist, or have you been able to, um, you've been able to incorporate them together? Well, yeah. What I do first is I study the history and the folklore together, and see how much of it actually intertwines, and where it branches off, if it actually does, either intertwine or branch off. And from there, we do the investigation based on both of them, looking for. Why do they say this in the folklore, and why does the history say this? We're going to have to go in with two separate, you know, 
ideas and ideals and, and look at it from two separate junctures. And, of course, you know, we always go into investigations with an empty head, which is easy for me. <laughs> <laughs> Can you ever turn that off? Can you ever turn off the investigative side of who you are? Say, say you're researching, uh, you know, something like, you know, if you see... Uh, a dark, strange person in a cemetery. Chances are it's Tom D'Agostino checking it out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when you're doing a, just like a straightforward history of a, of a, of a cemetery or a, or a graveyard kind of, kind of trip, can you shut the investigator off, or are you always looking for some kind of evidence in, in everything you do? Yeah, I can't. I, I just can't shut. I'll see a name, and I'll want to know why. And then I right. want to know why that name showed up anywhere, and I want to know the, from the moment they were born to the moment they died what they did and what the significance of a name in that place was all about. And then, of course, that leads to other names and other names, which in some cases I, where you see a story in, like, maybe Haunted New Hampshire, which is only a page long, it took me three days just to, just to work on one name to find out why they were mentioned at all. Right. And when you're in that situation, you know, I mean, obviously, if you're with Arlene, the camera comes out. But, but does the equipment come out with you? If you're if you're just tracking down names and 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 uh, you know doing research on the people who are there, do you do you have to you know investigate as if you were a paranormal investigator or a ghost hunter? Absolutely. You never know what's going to happen. Right. And the greatest thing is what everybody always says: when you least expect it, it happens. So you <laughs> right. might as well be ready. <laughs> In some or way be prepared, another. as the Boy Scouts would say to you. <laughs> yeah, we've blown a few things that because we didn't have equipment. Said, oh, what's what's going to happen? Let's just go in quickly and bang. You know, the ghosts are sitting there, like sticking their tongues out and waving their fingers at us and their ears and stuff. You know, ha ha, you got no recorder. <laughs> yeah, and I think that that's one of the things that I really took away um, when I was writing one of my books was that 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 story where you. While you were setting up the equipment, all the activity happened. And then once the equipment was up, the activity pretty much stopped for the night. Yep. And, and so it was always about keeping a running diary, which I'll think a lot of investigators don't necessarily do because they compartmentalize. Uh-huh. I'm in investigator mode now. Now I'm in setup mode. And so so, uh, so people need to – you don't have any books about your, your methods and your techniques, though, do you? No, well, no, actually, I don't. Um... The only one, the closest one, is the book, um, of course, Picture Yourself Ghost Hunting. <laughs> Which is my book, so that doesn't count, but you can promote it all you'd like. <laughs> yeah. Hey, shameless self-promotion. Works all the time. <laughs> so, so with our talk on, on folklore and investigating a connection between, i got to ask you, are there really vampires? Are there really vampires? Yeah. Do vampires really exist? Have they been in New England? Have they been in the United States? I mean, we can, we could probably have, you know... An entire series of shows on the uh, on the the vampires you were unable to or you were you were able to kind of prove their history and that they weren't. Are there vampires in New England? Are there vampires in the United There's States? Vampires all across the country, any state capital. Uh, <laughs> 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 I didn't say that. No, I'm only joking. Well, they, they really weren't. But you know, if you look at it from that point of view, people thought they were because in in my book, uh, History of Vampires in New England. I found a very rare writing which, which helps explain why people thought there were vampires. A great writer named Voltaire, who everyone studied in college, wrote that uh, vampires actually suck blood from one's stomach or back of neck until they become pale, gaunt, contract consumption, which was per- tuberculosis, and then they die, and then their spirit continues to feed off others known to them, family relatives. And we always wondered, how did these people get to digging up their loved ones, you know, and all that, for vampirism? And this writing just pegs it. In 1747, when these, when these people came to the New World, which is here, you know, now America, they obviously brought books and writings with them. And this, this man was a great writer of his time, so they obviously brought his writing along. So you don't believe that there is a supernatural being that is a vampire. It's all folklore. Well, in New England there is, but every single culture has this supernatural being that, that is this vampiric, vampire, well, well, vampire demon. <laughs> and um, 
and it, whether it, it like some of them, you know, have a tongue that shoots out with a needle and, and goes through the brain and sucks from the brain. Some of them bite from the neck. Some of them just eat the flesh, and you know. But every single culture has one, and they came from somewhere. So I can't say I don't believe at all, because when every single culture in the world has something like this, how can you possibly deny the exact existence of where at least the thought came from? But we, I do know in New England, the actual vampire scare was just consumption. Right. But as far as everywhere else goes, hmm. <laughs> you don't think that this, that your... Um your discovery of these things and your dis- your discovery of why these cultures and why these specific towns thought that people were vampires, that doesn't change your belief that something could exist. Right. Is there anything you don't believe in? I, huh? <laughs> is there anything you don't believe in? You said you um, enter with a, uh, an empty <laughs> mind. Is there, any, is there anything you're like, I know for a fact that this is not in existence? Uh, let's see. Um, I don't believe in, hmm, no, anything's possible. (laughs) Seriously, anything is possible. I mean, it's just because we scientifically have not discovered it yet does not mean it can't exist. And and a lot of things we take as zero point from our standpoint, like the HR diagram. If we look at it, what's zero? The sun. Why? Because it's our sun? Why don't we just take another another um, star up there and use it as zero? Everything comes from the standpoint of us, and that's where we go from. What is several, well, it wasn't more than several years ago. It was maybe 20-something years ago. When they found out that, they said, oh, yeah, yeah, cavemen ran around with clubs and ran around with bare feet and loincloths. And then they find this man frozen. They, they found him to be 175,000 years old or something, or even older, and he was wearing shoes and a coat. <laughs> they were off by something like uh, 75,000 years in their, in their estimations, scientists. I think that that line from Men in Black says it all, and he says, just think of what we won't know tomorrow. There you go. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and Mark's call a little bit ago, uh, I think that was Mark that called, uh, touched upon something uh, indirectly that I've been wanting to ask you about because we, we've, had, we've talked about it a little bit, um, you know, in our, just our conversations, but what do you, and I'm thinking of, you know, when we investigated um, the Samuel West house together, oh, <laughs> and yeah. downstairs, um, you know, Johnny had his base set up. Yes. And every investigator in that room, and I believe it was me, and it was you, and it was Moniz, and I think Mike Markowitz was there. I can't remember who else picked it up and could play it. Um, and I, I sat back and I kind of was like, huh, we're all musicians. Do you think there's a connection between the paranormal and music? Actually, that's a good question. And, and I think, yes, um, because when you face something like music, which is, although not magical, but it takes a, it's a higher ideal of, um, you know, thought because it's imagination, creativity, and structure all bound into one that must be carefully crafted and worked with, then you must have to think in a different and more open-minded manner. How about physically? How about scientifically? Do you think there's, there's a connection between them? I mean, can we draw people in through music? Can we, I mean, oh, it's been yeah. used for years in terms of, you know, different levels of spirituality, but do you feel that um, and if even you, as a musician, like you're able to get more uh, out of paranormal investigations, either because you incorporate music, and if you have you ever incorporated music, or because you just have been trained to pick up different vibrations or, or anything like that. Actually, you, you, that's right on all counts, and even more because uh, a lot of the um, the uh, Indians and other people, when they in in the Wiccans, they use music to draw vibrations and, and peaceful vibrations through different, you know, um, drums or, or instruments. And if you can listen to certain albums, they're peaceful, and others are kind of like thrashing, and it creates an energy within you. Have you ever tried to measure that? 
Um, as far as on a scientific level? Yeah. Not really. I never thought I had to. I always could just feel it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that esoteric side we were talking about before, right? Yeah. <clears throat> Have you ever tried to incorporate music into your actual investigations, though? Yes. Actually, yes, and, and we've come up with pretty good results. Like if we go into a Civil War soldier, I'll bring the old banjo and play, you know, goober peas or something. <laughs> and um, Or if it's uh, music like that in a, in a Victorian era, I might bring my parlor guitar and play some classical Baroque or Victorian-style music, things like that, or even the lute, you know, and and just try to appease things and, and see what we can do, just as friendly communication. I don't like to barrage spirits or energy with questions as if they're being interrogated. We like to just include them in on our little party, I guess you can call it. Which actually leads perfectly into the next thing I want to talk about, which was the idea that you have of the vigil. Um, And so for for investigators who don't know what that is, a little shop talk. What is, uh, you know, a lot of people say they have EVP sessions and, and they've gotten results from it and, and a lot of people get confrontational during those times. Um, but I like the fact that you um, call your sessions a vigil. Explain what the difference might be between what you're doing and what other people might be. In our case, a vigil, I mean, I got Elliot O'Donnell used to call it this. They'd sit there and vigil, which means they would just kind of talk um, and, and be sitting around and just include the energy as if they were part there, as if they were sitting there in a chair and ask a few questions as if we'd ask a few questions when we're sitting around. So, how are you doing? You know, um, what's new? Uh, um, oh, what's your name? You know, we like the place. How long you been here for? Um, you know, what do you think of the colors? Blah, blah, blah. You know, things like that. And, and just kind of then chat back and forth and stop every so often to see if when we play it back, we get anything. We had incredible results at many places like that, including... Um, the John York House in Connecticut. Talk a little bit about the evidence you got there. Oh wow! Um, the John York House. We were. We first of all, we were invited by a man named Gene Pouliot, who came to one of our book signings, and he um, asked us if we'd want to investigate. He had just bought it, and it was completely empty. And we went in there. Uh, it was Arlene and I, and we invited Matt. Moniz and Andrew Lake to help us out. And um, when we were in there, we've got um, EVPs telling us to shut the door and go away and this kind of stuff. And we included that in our book, Haunted Connecticut. Uh, Andy actually put it in his book, but he never mentions us. (laughs) I don't know why. But um, you'll find it in his book, too. And he never mentions us in a bunch of things in that book. But um, our book... We, we tell all of these vigils that we did, and and, and Matt was there. He, he heard the stuff. And it's a more peaceful way. I mean, a lot of people want to say, you know, say, you know, get them angry, you'll get more results. But the way you, you roll is kind of, you know, uh, more of let them come to you. Give them, a, yeah. give them a, a reason to talk, give them something to talk about, and then let it, let it go. If I start yelling at you, you don't want to talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> However, I know you ever go to like you go to like a party or, or a social gathering, and you see somebody say, "Oh, you know," and you meet them and you go, "I like that person." That's that's your aura connecting with someone else's aura, and right, finding some common ground and 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 in a non-confrontational way setting something right, up for you at chat. Right, and then you meet other people, and and you say you feel that aura like, "Ooh, you know, yeah, they're cool," but. And, and you don't want to be bothered after that. Well, we try to do the, you know, the connecting or where we're very nice and and just want to get to know what's there. And because of that, even at the tavern on Maine, we have got such a rapport with the energy there that we can never walk out of there without something happening. We have done um, so many investigations there and, and ghost hunt dinners and everything. And, and, I mean, wow, <laughs> I've got, I think, 70 EVPs from there over the course of, of course, several years. Right, right. 
So I just want to talk a little bit about Vermont because we're running out of uh, we're running out of time, but I kind of want to get a, a picture of of what the Vermont book is like. Is there any bridge in Vermont that's not haunted? Any bridge? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, <laughs> I mean, obviously, obviously, I'm joking, but it seems like they have a, a very deep history of haunted bridges. Yeah? Huh? I don't know. Maybe you know. Maybe the. Um, they didn't. They were made very dangerously, and people couldn't navigate them or something. But also, you got that that deep freeze stuff where they can, you know, make it really hard to go through. But I, I that's funny. If there are bridges that aren't haunted, they're not mentioned. <laughs> so <laughs> who just, cares you know, about them, right? They're passed over. Nobody cares about the unhaunted bridges. <laughs> they only want the haunted ones. Yeah, I mean, we were talking about you know the the personality of different places and the type of hauntings and the the, the natural and, and also the the personalities that might form that. And it would seem every time, every time I get uh, information about anything in, in Vermont, it always seems to revolve around a road or, or especially a bridge. Yeah, it, it, probably because other than roads and bridges, it's mostly just woodland. I guess you know. Oh, another thing too: most of Vermont was settled by Rhode Islanders. Hmm. And we all know how weird they are. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I'm one too. See, <laughs> it goes to show. <laughs> <There you> go. <laughs> No, we, there you go. It's it's a very it's it, you're right though. It's a very different place. Each place is so different. And Arlene and I have been amazed and and always in wonder of all the people we've met and how great they've been and how you know helpful they've been and and their stories, how compassionate they are about their haunts. And you know we really appreciate every single one we've ever done, which is a ton. I have a, I have a question in the chat room, really quick. Is there a Sleepy Hollow in Connecticut? Not that I know of. No. Okay. I mean, I know there's one in New York because, you know, I was called out to uh, to do an investigation there. Um, but, but people in the chat room were wondering about it. And I have to, I have to plead complete ignorance when it comes to Connecticut. All I know is that you don't speed there because you get a ticket. What is it? <laughs> don't speed in Connecticut because you'll get a ticket. Oh, yeah. Don't speed. <laughs> don't talk on the cell phone. And and don't and and you have to drive right. Uh, we there's always we always read in the paper people got tickets for failure to drive right. Did, did they create a standard for what is driving right, or is it just don't drive like you're from Massachusetts? I don't know. <laughs> well, we're right on the mass border, and uh, <laughs> I don't know. Um, we I, I never attempted to not drive right, so <laughs> I drive right. Um, I think it's. Failure to drive right. I think that's crossing the yellow line or something. But, <laughs> but no, Massachusetts people, when they come to Connecticut, you can always tell right away because uh, they're the ones looking for a ticket. <laughs> and when we go to Massachusetts, we're like, hey, 85, we're in. <laughs> but in Connecticut, you know, it's, it's 70, no it's, more. <laughs> it's funny because in Florida, you just naturally drive fast. So whenever I come back to New England, I always find myself going like, you know, 80 miles an hour on the highway, being like, what, I'm not going that fast. Yeah, I know, yeah. Well, in Massachusetts, that's accepted. <laughs> you know, they don't mind. Only if you're crossing the yellow lines. Yeah, it, whatever. In Connecticut, and, you know, no, they, 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 pretty, they call it the land of steady habits. <laughs> and they don't call it that for nothing. <laughs> you know, I wonder if you've ever um, informally <clears throat> tallied up how much money you spend on travel and, um, and, and, and accommodations and uh, equipment to get this stuff done because you are a real in-the-field kind of guy. Um, you know, when people talk about whether or not we should charge for investigations, and, and a lot of what you do is, is not, you know, necessarily for a family that could pay or anything like that, but how much money do you think you drop a year on this thing you do? Well, let's put it this way. We still owe a mortgage. <laughs> <laughs> And I, yeah, uh, uh, I couldn't even tell you, and, you know. And um, of course, by by having the books, that helps. But it's not that much. But it's just the passion of helping people, and and trying to further the, you know, the science. And and so we can share it with everyone. You know, you, everyone else. If we find something incredible, wow, it goes out to everybody. We want everyone to know, so maybe they can say, hey, this happened to me, or something like that, and then next thing you know, more pieces of the puzzle get put into place, and we're all working again to find something new. 
And of course, you can uh, you can help uh, Tom Diagostino's coughs if you are still listening uh, to us live and not on podcast. He's going to be at the Rock and Shock uh, tomorrow. Uh, you can go to rockandshock.com to get a lineup of the guests and and the hours and, the, and the, all that kind of good information. And and of course, <clears throat> excuse me, all of his books are out there. Haunted uh, New Hampshire, Haunted Massachusetts, Haunted Vermont, Haunted Rhode Island, uh, and of course we have the new one, which is. Uh, the Connecticut Ghost Stories and Legends. You also have um, your collection on New England, your uh, Abandoned Cemeteries book, all of which you can get just by typing Tom D'Agostino into any search engine or uh, going straight to uh, Spooky South Coast where we have that on tap for you. So kind of just to start rounding things up because the, the hour is getting late and I'm sure Costa needs to go to sleep after uh, after the day he's had today. Which state do you think has been most receptive after you've written a book about it? Receptive as far as? As far as you've gotten the best uh, reaction from people. You've gotten a, this real, like, positive vibe from them. Yes, we're glad these stories are out there. Oh. I didn't know this stuff was going around. Like, which, which state do you feel has embraced you the most after you've written a book about it? Um, well, Rhode Island has. And it is the first book, though, but they really have. Um, I, and all of them, basically, I mean, Connecticut just... <laughs> Everyone loves with... Tom D'Agostino is your, is your, uh, your point, right? Hmm? Everyone loves Tom D'Agostino. <laughs> yeah, well, um, well, not everyone, but <laughs> uh, I try hard. Uh, but, um, yeah, and, and even the Connecticut one that just came out, because we were like, Arlene and I were like the first to be invited to um, investigate places like the Hale Homestead, Captain Grant's, um, wow, uh, you know, different places like that, the John York House. I mean, Ed and Lorraine Warren, you know, investigated in the 60s, but these places, and and be, being that, I mean, that was, they, they, that came from somewhere. These people came up to us, and they, you know, they didn't just say, okay, um, uh, A to Z, pick a name in the phone book. <laughs> Right. And, and we're very honored to be able to have all these people want us to go to these places. And we were the first. We invited people along, you know, to, to uh, join us to do these investigations. And, and it was pretty cool. And, of course, we, we mentioned them all in our book, obviously. And right. uh, we give credit where credit is always due to everyone. Because um, without everyone, we'd be nowhere right now. Yeah, and that's kind of the ultimate validation when, when not only um, are places selling your book uh, and then putting your research, but people are respecting the way that you're handling it enough that they want you to take, you know, it's different if it's a person's house, but these places that you're talking about, um, inviting you in is, is the ultimate validation that you're not only that, they're, that people are noticing what you're doing, but that you're doing it the right way. Right. We never, when we do our investigations, of course, we never charge a dime, never have. Put it this way, if I had charged, I've been over a thousand investigations, if I had charged anything for them, we'd be living in a villa in France right now <laughs> with a private jet to get back here when we wanted to. <laughs> so, so, new uh, from Schiffer in 2012, haunted uh, French villas. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not likely, but we'll give it a shot. <laughs> But, um, that, that cooperative approach, I, I'm looking at, you know, uh, the New England Paranormal United Research Society, and it would seem that, you know, it was founded by you and Arlene, but um, when, you, when you list uh, investigations and when you talk about things, it's that this group came along with you and stuff like that. Is that the, the concept behind Paranormal United Research Society, that it, it's you guys and the best uh, investigators for the gig? Absolutely. It, it's, yes, it, it, because... Um, it, we just want, love, we love working with everyone, and I've always said this, like I said, I've been over 29 years doing this. If I walk out of an investigation and I haven't learned something, I wasn't paying attention enough. <laughs> and that's the way I still feel, every single investigation. And when we do our private investigations, of course, that's confidential. You'll never see them on the website. We have things that have happened that are completely wild that would blow people's minds, but because they were confidential investigations we can't show anyone right you know those they, they get put away and and therefore the clients only 
And that's a really good, I mean, that's, the, that's a, a very similar approach to what I've taken, you know, when people say, you know, oh, you are Massachusetts Paranormal Crossroads. No, I'm Chris Baltonald. That's a website. Um, and I've been, I've been fortunate enough to investigate with you several times, which is, which is uh, you know, and what I've taken away from you. And I, I think you need to start thinking about a, uh, you know, investigating the Agostino Way kind of, uh, the Agostino Way book. I'm sure someone would, uh, would, uh, would pay you for it. Yeah, well, you know, it, it's um, it's it would be Arlene and Tom because Arlene, of course, <laughs> is an incredible investigator and gifted at a lot of things, and of course, you know, she puts those great pictures to my dumb words. I miss investigating with you. You got to come back here. I know. I was wondering when you're going to come down and investigate Florida. Ah, soon as, yeah, as soon as we can get there. Right now, our cars are haunted. I don't want to leave New England. <laughs> Oddly enough, right now my bank accounts are haunted, so I'm not able to get up to Massachusetts. Yeah. Oh well, if we had a bank account, I'm, I'd, I'd be happy to have it haunted. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think it's it's interesting because I remember, um, and for those people who are in the chat room who know that my my uh, my handle is Hilly Rose, and I'm a big fan of uh, of, uh, of Hilly Rose and, and the show that he does. Um, I think the first time I heard you speak was uh, with Hilly Rose. And if I'm not, if I'm if I'm mistaken, if you have never been on his show, just tell me. But and he asked a question that was kind of a silly question, but that's his way sometimes. He asked, "What was the hardest part about writing the book?" And your response was getting the pictures almost immediately, getting the pictures. And I remember that at that time, the writer in me being like, "Really? The hardest part of writing a book is getting the pictures?" If no one, if there's someone out there listening to this who has not opened one of your books. Um, your pictures really do tell a thousand words, um, and it's kind of you capture the you capture the essence of these places. Or I shouldn't say you capture the essence of the places. Your team, meaning Arlene, um, capture the essence of this. How important do you think that is when you're telling a story to get that perfect picture? Well, Arlene um, is a professional photographer. She knows what she's doing, and I always just. I, I take a lot of haunted thumbs in pictures, so that's why I'm not allowed. <laughs> I'm always, my thumbs are always in them, so she takes the pictures. But it's 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 unbelievably important because when people are reading a story, it's great, but you want to show them exactly what they're going to see when they go there as best as possible in one picture. And and that's a, you know it's a, that's a one-dimensional thing you're looking at. So you have to, like, you know, I, I'll show a picture of a living room. We walked into it and saw all this beautiful furniture. Maybe something happened there. But what they're going to see is just this picture with a couple of chairs or something. So right. you're going to make it look as dynamic as possible. And her pictures are living and breathing. That's, that's really one of the most impressive things. And I totally, after I, after I ended up reading your book, understood what you meant with that quote. Oh, oh, thank you. <laughs> it just goes a testament to Arlene's, you know, photography skills. <laughs> like the cover of Rhode Island, that was not doctored up at all. She actually took her. that picture, and that's what they printed exactly on the cover. And there's the the somewhat famous picture of you in the uh, in the cemetery. I think it's in the haunted um, haunted New Hampshire book, where you look a lot like um, Howard Stern. Oh, is that the back cover of Haunted Rhode Island when I'm heading toward Missy <laughs> Brown's crypt? Right. And so the first time I met you, I was like, oh, that doesn't look like Howard Stern at all. Oh, I'm more like Ozzy. <laughs> I always tell people, yeah, we got Ozzy to come in and do a picture for us. <laughs> How are we doing on time? Um, we probably should wrap it up. Okay. But... All right. Well, Tom, I'm going to thank you for coming in to all of the... Uh, all the delays and, and, and all the, the changes we had to do before and after today. Um, Tom Diagostino, you can go to his website, um, which is New England United Paranormal at www.neprs.info. Um, or you can check com. out the links, dot com, I'm sorry. Dot com. Or um, you can check out the, uh, the links from Spooky South Coast. We also have some of his stories there and all of his books. And, and Tom, keep doing what you're doing, brother. Oh, thank you. You too. I, it was an honor and a pleasure to talk to you again. <laughs> I know this is really my first, uh, my first official, you know, 
big-time celebrity paranormally guy interview, so you were my first. How was it? Oh, well, thank you. Um, I, I, I'm quite an honor. Um, boy, who else was on tonight? Besides me. We only, we only have time for you. Oh. Yeah, I got a big All right, mouth, so, yeah. Tom, thank you very much, man. Have a great night. Thanks, you too. All right. Thanks. This is uh, Chris Balzano for Matt Coffin in the studio and Tim Weisberg and Matt Moniz and all the other formal and informal members of the crew saying have a great night and stay spectacular. Rest assured, listener, that my time here has not been easy and what you have just heard was not fiction. Although... In many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. It's over for now, it seems. Or at least, until yesterday begins again. Tomorrow, 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 tomorrow. Look, I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does happen.